Cultural depictions of 1980s suburbia are selling at a bizarre premium these days, perhaps due to a confluence of factors, including the coming of age of a generation of creators who first experienced that context as children, as well as a series of contemporary cultural crises for which 80s suburban nostalgia seems like the ideal balm today. On Three Panel Contrast this episode, we're going to take a switchbladed stab at making sense of this pattern its politics and values, its connection to the comics medium, and even just what happens when the fantasy components of this particular subgenre get extrapolated a step toward a fantasy of bank robbing, and then a step further toward a full-on time travel epic. We'll be doing this by isolating and comparing Paper Girls Volume 1 by Brian K. Vaughan and Cliff Chang uh, with Four Kids Walk Into a Bank by Matthew Rosenberg and Tyler Boss. Let's get started. So joining me today are our usual panel. I have with me Anna Papard. Hello. Um, I am, yeah, Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a writer, talker, podcaster, (laughs) occasional university instructor, and excited to talk about the 80s today. And Dr. Michael Hancock. Uh, I'm an instructor, researcher, and can't get the song Paper Girl out of my head this week. <laughs> uh, and I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann from St. John's University at the campus of the University of Waterloo. Uh, so today we're talking about um, a pair of um, really kind of synergistic comics that have a whole lot in common, despite being set in an era roughly 30 to 40 years uh, before they're actually written. So I think maybe the best place to start is just with our introductions to our texts. You've probably heard this one before. Imagine a story about a bunch of lowlifes who dream of their big score. They're ex-cons, kind of pathetic, and yet dangerous to themselves, but also others. That's Usual Suspects, Asphalt Jungle, Logan Lucky. Now, imagine a different story, but also a story you've probably heard before. A group of kids go through a traumatic adventure that tests their friendship and propels them into adulthood. That's Goonies. Stranger Things, Super 8. Now imagine the story where the kids meet the lowlifes and decide they're going to do the heist first. That's Boston Rosenberg's Four Kids Walk Into a Bank. I'm probably going to accidentally say bar many times here, so let's just get that out of the way. Uh, The story features a set of misfit young teens, the pathologically shy science geek Walter, the dominant Paige, the gangly Stretch, and Burger. After Paige learns that her father is associating with a quartet of criminal near-dwells, they decide to investigate and commit several crimes along the way, including breaking and entering, assault, arson, theft of a motor vehicle, and, of course, a bank robbery. Despite their lengthening list of licentious larceny, the young protagonists remain endearing and the story entertaining throughout. Well, mostly throughout. And the credit goes to its two primary creators. Cartoonist Tyler Boss and writer Michael Rosenberg met in 2011, when both were working at a New York comic book shop. Boss was in New York to attend the School of Visual Arts, learning design and visual pacing under artists such as Klaus Janssen and David Masichelli. Arguably, you can see traces of both of them in Boss's style. Janssen's emphasis on figure and facial expression, and Masichelli's creativity in layout and design. The result is a comic book series where virtually every character is recognizable by silhouette, and even a densely packed page of talking heads is made interesting. 
The layout is continually an unfolding surprise. For longtime listeners, it reminds me in places of Jamie McKelvey's Young Adventure run, albeit more focused on tableau, or tableau than a typical panel structure. For his part, Matthew Rosenberg moved from music business into comics, as evidenced by his first comic published, or Black Mask's first book, 12 Reasons to Die, written in collaboration with members of the Wu-Tang Clan. From that starting point in 2013, he's done more independent work, some writing for DC and some writing for Archie, but his primary work has been at Marvel. There, his writing ranges from cosmic space stuff like Raccoon and Annihilation Scourge to more grounded Punisher and Hawkeye, as well as X-Men related miniseries starring New Mutants and Multiple Man. But his best known work is probably his controversial run on the uncanny X-Men. Rosenberg's Marvel work has been met with somewhat mixed reviews. He's frequently praised for character work, but the plots sometimes meander, and the tone goes darker than readers are willing to follow. Admittedly, these elements are on display in Four Kids Walk Into a Bank, but here it works, <clears throat> except maybe in the ending, uh, in large part, I think, due to the collaboration at the book's core. As I alluded to at the start, this comic blends the tone of the high story with the tone of a coming-of-age adventure story. Playing so heavily to genre has drawbacks. Besides Paige, the characters are arguably not fully fleshed out, and at points, the difference between the two genres leaves a bit of a tonal whiplash. But any drawbacks from that combination are, I think, outweighed by the strengths that result and the strength of its creators. Balanced with Boss's art and Rosenberg's plotting, Four Kids Walking to the Bar is a genre mix of a book, but one that takes its original sources and makes something that's uniquely its own. Uh, and Anna, can you tell us a little bit about Paper Girls? Yeah, I sure can. So Paper Girls is a mystery slash science fiction series by writer Brian K. Vaughn, illustrated by Cliff Chang and colored by Matthew Wilson. It was released by Image Comics between 2015 and 2019 and was much celebrated. It won two Eisners in 2016 for Best New Series and Best Penciler slash Inker. And in 2017, the first compilation was shortlisted for the Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story. Issue number one introduces us to four 12-year-old newspaper delivery girls named Erin, Mackenzie, KJ, and Tiffany. The setting is a place called Stony Stream, a fictional suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. The year is 1988, and the date is November 1st, the day after Halloween. The plot is both simple and convoluted on the most basic level. While they're out delivering papers, Erin, Mackenzie, KJ, and Tiffany bear witness to an alien invasion that's not quite alien. It's really warring factions of time travelers from the future, using Stony Stream as a battleground and its inhabitants as pawns. On a deeper level, the war waged between the time travelers seems to be a battle between adulthood and youth. One of the groups goes by the telling name of the Old Timers, and the members of the opposing group, whose faces and bodies are strangely deformed and augmented with cybernetics, explicitly describe themselves as teenagers. But we don't get a full picture of the conflict from the first volume. You have to keep reading to get the whole story. What we do get are laser rifles, time travel, and mutant pterodactyls. On an even deeper level, this is, like so many comics, both indie and mainstream, with superheroes and without them, a coming-of-age story. The sci-fi action and time travel are set within and interwoven with portraits of the life of a latchkey kid in the suburban 80s and pubescent identity struggles related to gender, sexuality, and other identity markers. Erin, the focal character, is new in town and clearly navigating her identity in this new space, which quickly becomes even more new, big, and scary. But Erin's up to the challenge, as are her new friends. The girls of Paper Girls are often scared and confused and profoundly out of their depth, trying to fight off galactic and existential threats. 
but they always barrel ahead, leaning on their experience fighting for space within the male-dominated realm of newspaper delivery. This male domination is a theme of the book with a meta context. The backup feature, a letters page and invitation to join the American Newspaper Delivery Guild, hosted by Petey the Paperboy, plays with and subverts the male-dominated history of comics and comics fandom, which is and always has been a revisionist history. Girls have always read comics, just like they've always delivered papers, but this history has often been treated as lost to time, just like the fictional girls of Paper Girls who are lost in time, yet found and fully realized through fantasies with deep roots in the real. For me, the style of this comic might be its biggest selling point. Chang and Wilson create a vibrant world of bombastic color and big expressions that never stops feeling grounded. The pacing is excellent, with bombast frequently and sometimes jarringly interrupted by thoughtful or frightening silences. One of my favorite sequences occurs in issue four, when, in the middle of the girls fighting a horrific monster, we're given multiple silent pages of Tiffany flashing back to spending what seems to be a year of her life doing nothing but playing the same video game. Chang's character modeling is also impressive. He creates faces, <laughs> styles, and body types for each girl. They're at once economically, economical and entirely individual, doing a lot with a little. I also love Chang's approach to action. Bodies and objects careen and explode all over these pages, but amid sparse backgrounds that lend a contemplative quality to the spectacle, or maybe something surreal, befitting the story and the thematic juxtaposition between the mm. mundanity of suburbia and the seeming excitement of the futuristic war. All in all, it's a beautiful, fast-paced book with lots of heart that should give us plenty to talk about in terms of representation and style and why comics are always coming-of-age stories. Because they always are, right? Why? Why always? Okay, so my favorite thing about um, Anna's writing on comics is her unique ability to connect critical readings to personal experiences in a way that better represents, for my money, the actual experience of being a reader, uh, and thus finding, you know, critical ways to do that. So if we track the history of three-panel contrast, I don't believe I've ever asked a, a personal experience question, but I'm inspired to try that today, given that, you know, I, I think we all have some sort of experience with the 80s, either directly or indirectly through media. So my, my question then is simple. How, how does this rendering or these renderings of you know the 1980s culture or suburban life or whatever speak to your experiences of that subculture i mean yeah i was thinking about this question and i i'm i'm sort of annoyed by a lot of the 80s nostalgia stuff there is a lot of 80s stuff that i have nostalgia for but i mean you know i was born in 1983 so i mean i was quite young through a lot of the 80s and I also didn't have necessarily a super traditional experience. You know, I grew up in a very rural area, like we had three TV channels and we didn't have a VCR until I was like maybe 12. So, and you know, we didn't go to movies or anything. So, you know, I grew up on a farm. I had a pony, so like I wasn't like disadvantaged, but at the same time, I just didn't, I didn't really have like that pop culture experience that a lot of people sort of had during the eighties. And so I do find that there's this thing where I'm expected as now like an older millennial to have this deep, deep nostalgia for the eighties there's supposed to be all these cultural touchstones like Monster Squad and Goonies that I have seen and I have not seen those things I didn't see them when I was a kid I have no nostalgia for them and yet there's so many things that come out that expect me to have that nostalgia and I just there's there's grains of it that I have but I also for me it feels like a constructed nostalgia that I'm expected to perform up to and I often find that a weird experience. Like, I don't know what sort of experience or age of people. Like, I feel like it's a very suburban nostalgia, which is not my experience at all. So I feel alienated from that yeah. aspect of it. But I, I don't know. I'm curious about your experiences, too. It's an interesting question. On my side, I'm 
also a very uh, rural background, although uh, town not farm, but I mean, it's a town of 700 people. So you don't get to go the full range of the stereotypes you see in 80s movies because there just aren't enough kids to populate them all. <laughs> you can uh, I just say too that I had the knee jerk no, small town I, I had the knee jerk small town reaction thing of like you were like my town had 700 people and I was immediately in my head yeah the town I live outside of has 200 people so because like, <laughs> when you're from a small town you always have to compete with how small your town is and I was like no my town doesn't even yep. have a traffic light <laughs> Anyway, please continue. I'm sorry. Oh, my, mine either, but yeah. <laughs> um, I was assuming. It also doesn't relate to many of my, like, the gang of four kind of thing that we get. These really close-knit group of friends doesn't necessarily relate to my experience either. What I get more, I have more connection to the media consumption parts of things. Uh, I remember very distinctly that my brothers and I watched E.T. on the VCR so many times that we destroyed the tape. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's it's weird. I don't relate to the setting or the bonding experiences, but I do relate to the media consumption. Uh, so it works, but has diminishing returns. Sometime around when Ready Player One was popular, I was like, all right, I'm, I, I think I'm done with the 80s. I think I think let's do 90s for a while. Let's see how that works. Yeah, I, I think I like Anna's point. I wouldn't mind hearing your response to that, Michael. Just the idea that what we have here is sort of a, um, I don't know, simulacrum of what the 1980s was. Maybe not something that's antithetical to our experiences, but maybe even to all experiences. Like, like to me, this is Steven Spielberg's 1980s. And oh, I know that's not the real 1980s. Yeah, the I mean, just the idea of kids like going very fast around town on their bikes feels yeah. so Spielberg. Yeah. I don't know. I almost don't get that. I get less of that tone from four kids walk into a bar, maybe because the kids, I don't know. I think it's because they're engaging with media that I never encountered as a kid. Like I know D and D existed, but I certainly never had a chance to play it. Uh, whatever arcade game they're playing seems a lot more nineties than eighties. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think I found an interview with Boss where he admits that his style is more a weird conglomerate of whatever he wants to include so that the setting is 80s, but he feels free to draw in visual elements from other periods. I definitely did have, I mean, although I enjoyed Paper Girls, I did have a little bit of a frustration with it in terms of it being that simulacrum that you mentioned, you know, that I'm supposed to feel a certain type of nostalgia for this space that feels very manipulative and very, I don't understand how genuinely I'm supposed to be experiencing that. Like, am I supposed to be experiencing nostalgia for the actual experience of being a kid in the 80s? Or am I supposed to be experiencing nostalgia for a certain set of 80s pop culture texts that I don't necessarily have nostalgia for? And I, that's fine that there's like a slippage there because that can be a storytelling device or whatever but yeah that's just a feeling that i have with a lot of the 80s nostalgia and it definitely persisted here and i wasn't sure how i felt about it yeah i think that makes sense one of the things that i've kind of pondered a lot is if the 80s are the new 1950s that this yes era of yes really yes heavily cultivated and commercialized yeah. nostalgia and i don't know why the 60s and the 70s didn't get that and why it's specific eras that get honed in is like the the golden age of suburban life or something like that 
I don't know. I like I've thought about that before, but I mean, it must have something to do with just sort of the nature of the media landscape and the way that media was marketed to kids during the 80s, you know, because I mean, it was sort of the rise of a new type of youth culture in terms of just the hyper marketing of everything to children during that era and you know sort of the rise of a million cartoon shows and you know all the because we've talked about that a little bit when we talked about transformers mm-hmm. and gi joe yeah. right i mean some of those 1980s contexts and i mean you know you think about the 1950s as sort of the first era in which tv is really popular right and the 80s is just like you know sort of like a hyper expansion of sort of media consciousness that was just so because i mean even me having like three tv channels i was still aware of these things i mean there were still commercials for all of these things like there were still ads for these toys on every cereal box like i was never allowed to watch like wrestling in the 80s and yet i knew all the wrestlers like how did i know that it was just something that was like marketed to you constantly (laughs) even if you only had three tv channels right so i mean i can't even imagine if i'd had cable or if i'd had access to all of these things i mean it is just a hyper media landscape. And I think people sort of growing up in that landscape, a lot of their experience of reality, I mean, it's like Tiffany playing the video game, a lot of your experience of reality is mediated Mm -hmm. through the media that you consume during that era. So I think it makes sense that that nostalgia is thoroughly inseparable, like your nostalgia for that time in your life is thoroughly inseparable from the media. And I think it makes a lot of sense to keep returning to that era as a nostalgic space maybe i like maybe it's like this space in which you didn't feel that disconnect between media and reality or at least you're imagining in retrospect that you didn't feel it you know there was sort of like almost a purity to that because it's a strange postmodern purity compared to the 1950s purity which is less self-reflexive at least in theory yeah, yeah. but yeah but it's I, I really think that there is something there in terms of that you know it being the new 50s but like the postmodern nostalgia 50s where it was like this pure postmodernism where we were living in postmodernism but we were happy existing there and we didn't feel that radical split between you know our past self and our future self that we feel when we age out of that era something i don't know i don't know i feel like this needs to like i'm sure there i mean i have read a lot of stuff about (laughs) 80s culture that's sort of but yeah I think, like, if we look at the 1950s, it's specifically nostalgized for teenagers, whereas the mm-hmm. 80s is specifically nostalgized for um, preteens, let's call them. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that might speak to, like, we know that the teenagers believe to be an invention of the 1950s. Uh, and a lot of people will point to, like, MTV culture and youth culture of the 1980s as being when that mm-hmm. demographic was specifically targeted uh, and considered valuable. So maybe that plays in. I, like, I, I don't know. It's It's, it's such a weird focus uh of our culture these days well i mean are you thinking like you know the 1950s Um, is sort of teenagers and then the 1980s it's like you know marketing to like 12 and unders because i mean it's significant that paper girls it's like 12 year olds right so i mean you know it's the invention of you know the 10 year old as a consumer right that's what i'm thinking but again i'm i'm an english major so (laughs) i don't have have anything to offer to that theory yes you do what were you gonna say now It just struck me for a moment in terms of your comparison to the 1950s nostalgia that I, it like specifically the similarities kind of more thematic than anything else between this and, uh, or between Paper Girls specifically and Bradbury's uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Just this idea of uh, Halloween in particular as a focal point for, I don't know, memory. Whereas these kids are, kind of moving beyond that they've like put the kids stuff behind and now they're doing they're they're getting up super early to do their work oh yeah that's awesome yeah the yeah. idea of like the child labor force coming of age 
Well, okay, so um, what do you think the 80s do for these two stories? Like, like, how would they be different if Four Kids Walk Into a Bank was set in 2020 uh, or Paper Girls in, I don't know, 2010? I think if you set Four, kid, or Four Kids Walk Into a Bank in 2020, they don't even get as far in the bank robbery. As, yeah, because, yeah. <laughs> someone gets shot a lot sooner in that story uh, and yeah just the level of surveillance wouldn't feel quite right as far as that goes i think you could set it earlier without changing a lot mm-hmm. but i i mean it it practically gives a much earlier vibe in some places too yeah i thought it almost had like a 70s vibe uh-huh. but i mean like that's partly me sort of reading the 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 heist yeah, sort of genre into it a little bit too mm-hmm yeah, even the color palette, I would say, is very, um, I don't know, I, I was thinking of like the French Connection, which I think is 70s, yeah. might be late 60s. It, it's it, it, it's it 70s. Like that, aesthetically. Well, what about Paper Girls, Anna? I mean, it seems very 80s, but again, sort of that n- like nostalgia, like manufactured version of the 1980s. I mean, it's definitely that sort of latchkey thing that I like, you know, mentioned in my intro where these kids are just sort of existing without parental supervision, which was such a common theme in 80s movies, right? I mean, that enables these adventures to happen. The fact that these kids are just sort of <laughs> wandering around unsupervised. And as Michael said, they actually have jobs in this one. So they actually have a certain measure of freedom just based on that. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like see it reaching for some, I mean, part of what I had sort of frustration with, with this first volume is that I could see it reaching for some sort of larger themes where it doesn't quite get there, like after five issues. So like, I'm not sure kind of necessarily that I have a final sort of point to make about, about that connection between the eighties culture and like what it might be critiquing or subverting or not, but yeah, I'm not sure. That's a horrible answer yeah, to your question. Yeah, it's weirdly decompressed. Hmm. It is, it is. Um, I can, I, I've read a little further into the series, and one of the reasons you said it in the 80s is that you get the sense that the world is very dangerous, but also we haven't gotten to the point where kids are heavily monitored. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. that even though, I think that thematically plays in this series very well. Um, at the very end of the volume we're reading, one of them encounters their future self and Mm -hmm. it plays up that difference a lot in later issues like the disappointment of your adult future and i think you need the 80s or at least if you set that in present day then it becomes like a weird well what does the future for everyone look like whereas it can be much more personal in that in in this approach i mean yeah i mean it is a terrifying reality that they exist in i mean i'm just like that was definitely even wasn't wasn't typical even of my but you know i would have had to walk like you know 10 minutes even to like see another child so <laughs> it was like the idea of being bullied would have been very foreign in that sense i mean i could have ridden my pony i suppose um <laughs> like i'm like living in the 18 like the 1890s over here but um but yeah I, can i say that i just really hate yeah. that trope of like being a kid and then encountering your future self and being so disappointed that's such a stupid trope i like really really hate it i'm like man like i don't have like a huge mansion and like a certain kind of life or whatever but my kid self would think i was so awesome just because like i had cool sneakers like i mean <laughs> yeah. it's like man you have money and you can just buy shoes and candy <laughs> when you want it like that's amazing like my goals weren't like big like it's so weird 
weird this trope of like yeah you encounter your older self and you're like oh man like this is your house like oh man you have to go to a job this is your hair man you're so lame and i'm like really is that how most of us would react to our future selves it's such a negative view and it's not totally like that she has the big tv and at least they're impressed by that but but yeah, I don't know. I always find that such a depressing because it sort of gets back to this thing that I hate in children's literature, where it's like the loss of innocence is just such a tragedy. And if we could just stay in childhood, everything would be so much better. Yeah, and I hate yeah. that trope. I'm like, childhood mm -hmm. is dark and terrifying and you're confused about the world. Like, I don't want to go back to being a child. I mean, going back to, you know, something wicked this way comes. That's what's so horrifying is like the idea of being reduced to a child and trapped mm -hmm. as a child. And I'm like, that, I think, is a very effective, you know, story telling trope that is underplayed in media whereas this thing of like being disappointed with your older self i'm just like yeah okay i don't want to go back to being a child but i guess that's just me well i think it's interesting what anna was saying like the people who wrote that story about being disappointed by your childhood self are awesome comic book writers that any child yeah, like, would how could they be disappointed become, right mm -hmm. <laughs> so what's their perspective on that what, what, what angle are they taking other than saying, you know, people who aren't awesome comic book writers should feel disappointed with what they become, which is dark. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that about myself. It's just like, well, you know, I mean, like the future is very, you know, uncertain for a lot of us looking for jobs in the academic market right now. But at the same time, I'm just like, well, I got to spend a significant portion of my life, like reading comic books and getting paid for it and writing about comic books and podcasting about comic books. It's yeah. just like, I mean, how many people get to do that? It's awesome. No regrets. Oh, I want to talk about um, gender representation, as we often do. Um, both of these texts have female protagonists at the center of them. Both of them have like a pretty much all-male creative team. Uh, it's, in both cases, I think, supposed to be very interior portrayals uh, of what it was like to be a young girl in the suburbs in the 1980s. Uh, and I think there's elements of subversion to both of them, um, where the, the girl's experience is meant to be sort of um, pulling back the curtain on what it was really like, at least in the eyes of the creators. Uh, I'm wondering how well that holds up for you in these texts. Does the female characters feel like, I don't know, um, reskinned male creators' experiences? Um, or do you think that they do anything that really adds something to the gender portrayal? Is there an insight taking place in either of these texts? That's always such a hard question because I don't want to be essentialist and say that this isn't someone else's experience because it could very well be. I did have the feeling with Paper Girls that I sometimes have with text starring female protagonists by male creators and like not exclusively this isn't again this isn't essentialist this is just like you know this is just sometimes the feeling you get with certain books or not but just that there's a thing that can happen sometimes where male creators want to use female characters because they consider it a blank slate for them in a way you get out of a lot of sort of the toxicity that you encounter when you're working with male characters and you can just like use female characters in a way that feels for male creators less politically problematic because look you're doing like representation because you're doing these strong female characters if you're going to have them behave not like quote-unquote traditional girls that's going to be treated as empowering because you're not falling into stereotypes and yet i think your point about reskinning resonates with me in the sense that there's so little that's identifiably female about these characters which can be very empowering and yet at the mm -hmm. same time I'm just like 
I don't know, like there's so many aspects of how I would have been at 12 years old, which are not positive aspects of female experience. I mean, 12 years old is like when I remember like a big conversation between like you and all your girlfriends would be like, what size jeans do you wear and everything, right? Like that's when you start start to become like super conscious of that kind of stuff and sort of the requirements of presenting a certain way and everything. And he's treating these girls as though they're outside of that and they're freed from that. And that can be really empowering, as I said, and yet you have to debate, I think, what you're losing in terms of specificity of experience and in terms of realisticness of experience, because I think these girls are very idealized in terms of their ability to step outside of gender scripts. But is that identifiable or not? And I think lots of different people would have different reactions to that. I can imagine plenty of other people, like other women my same age, being like, this was so great that I got to read this book and not think about all that gender trope crap, right? And I'm like, totally, I totally, totally get that. But I also had a bit of a sense of alienation in terms of them, you know... (laughs) Like there's an idealization, right? Like this is how I'm supposed to be as a girl. I'm not supposed to care about all these gendered scripts that like I'm socialized into. And I was like, I know, but I was socialized into those things and I need to talk about them and work through them and just excising them isn't necessarily productive either. So I don't know how I feel. And I feel like, I feel like I'm being a girl wrong because I'm not as liberated as these girls. And I like, it's (laughs) like, I don't know. It makes me feel a little bit weird. Yeah, I think with um, Paper Girls in particular, it it had more of an opportunity because it has multiple female characters Mm -hmm. from slightly Mm -hmm. different walks of life, right? So if you are getting a kind of homogenized portrayal, that's maybe more of a problem for Paper Girls than it is for four kids. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Michael. How do you feel about Paige? Um, Like I said in the intro, I think she's the most developed of the characters, but also... um, that's not necessarily going very far in this particular case. Like the kids are, I mean, all the characters in this story are pretty broad types, Mm -hmm. which works for what it's trying to do, I think for the most part. But I think she avoids being entirely a reskinning by only by virtue of the fact that she's indulging or that her character indulges in a lot of tomboy stereotypes. The only other real female character in the book that, I think gets any kind of screen time is the bully's mother. And that's a great couple of scenes, but again, like no, not exactly a a positive figure. Yeah. I mean, that can be an issue in the sense that it can be that reskinning again. Right. I mean, this is a male world populated by men and male protagonists. And yet we have this one girl who does, as Michael's saying, conform to a lot of tomboy tropes. I guess maybe it resonated with me to the degree that she did seem like she was trying to work through her identity in some really sort of powerful and obvious ways. And although it was tropish, you know, in terms of her playing certain characters within the games and stuff that did to me speak to her struggling with her gender, gender identity in a way that paper girls has the thing of like, Mm -hmm. Oh, they're like being bothered by boys, but I didn't see them trying to work through like, Oh, what is the shape of my body? What do I want the shape of my body to be like, am I going to have to give, that up if I'm socialized into a certain type of being, right? And I actually did feel that playing out more powerfully with Paige than the girls in Paper Girls, at least from this first volume. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm strangely like being like, there was something about the homogeneity of like the four girls in Paper Girls that maybe did hit me a little wrong, whereas Paige felt like a more individual character that was reckoning with a lot of identity conflicts, and that actually oh, I, resonated yeah. with me a little more. 
Yeah, it's weird how, like, I we've spent five issues with the Paper Girl characters, and honestly, until significantly further in the series, I had a hard time telling some of them apart. Yeah, same. Yeah. Like, even though they have distinct hairstyles, I was like, which one's KJ? Which one's Aaron? I think those two primarily, but we get hints of their character that Tiffany is seems to have an interest in electronics in general. Uh, everyone calls Aaron weird. Mac is the more tomboy one, but like they're very broad too. Oh yeah. Like in any given situation in paper girls, you know, when they're faced with some sort of crisis, it's like any of them might be the one to hit the monster with the stick. And I can't predict which one it's going to be. It's not like one of them is given to like fits of anger or something. It's like they all are given to the same fits of anger and you know, like, yeah, they did have these distinct looks, but to what extent are they just boiled down to a costume? And to what extent do we see their individual personalities playing out in terms of their behavior? And yeah, I definitely didn't get a strong sense of that after five issues. I mean, because we could talk, we didn't talk about masculinity or anything, which is like often a thing that happens when we have a conversation about gender mm. and it's always just about girls and we don't talk about boys as though they don't have gender. So I could ask you guys a question about masculinity and like i think it's a pertinent question for 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 kids in particular yeah Mm -hmm. that that's kind of where i was seeing it i I think there is an element of um um, your three male characters being outside hegemonic masculinity and being pressured towards that in some of their fantasies including Mm -hmm. up to robbing a bank you know what i mean it's Mm -hmm. a bit of a gender portrayal for them which is a social status maneuver i don't know if you'd agree with that michael I think I definitely agree with their, like, a sort of struggle with their masculinity. Uh, it, it is a kind of unspoken tension between them and Paige, particularly for Stretch, I think. Um, there's a lot of it in Paige's father's relationship to her yeah. that she might not be thinking of herself in quite those gendered terms, but he thinks of her in those terms. He calls her Tiny Princess. It's it's like the last line of the book when she's an adult mm-hmm. who has just gotten out of prison. Tiny Princess. And again, I think that speaks to the self-awareness that Anna was talking about a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but did we feel that... I mean, one of the things I kind of liked about Four Kids in terms of gender was that it didn't feel like the guys were going along with Paige because there was a romantic connection. It felt like they were going along with her because of other qualities that drew them to her. And I did like that about it. I think Stretch might be an exception there that he I think he has there's hints that he has a romantic inclination in that direction, but not the other two that. Mm -hmm. Paige is primarily the leader or Paige leads the group because she's a strong personality that the other yeah. three are looking for. <laughs> mm-hmm. And are terrified of. It's cute. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so moving in the direction of um, this sort of children's literature trope that I want to talk about and Anna mentioned briefly, um, the idea of children's literature is almost always about empowering children. And both of these texts are clearly doing that. And we already talked about how that connects to the 1980s context when kids were sort of left to their own devices and could therefore have murderous adventures and all that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, both of these texts portray that as problematic. There's the, the great line in four kids when they surrender, you know, we're just kids. And that's like the first time they realize that in the entire book, which is kind of, 
beautiful in my eyes. Uh, and Paper Girls in terms of their um, experience of like moral consciousness uh, as a result of this war that they're they're taking way too lightly because it's not their experience. They're not conscious of it. So how do you think these two stories work in terms of that trope of child empowerment in conflict with like the grim and gritty worlds that we're seeing? If that makes sense. I may have put too many variables in there. (laughs) You want to take that one, Michael? I'm really torn on four kids walk into a bank in this regard that um, like, I'm trying to sort through my feelings on like just being, Oh no, at the ending and being uh, very sorry for what happens versus a feeling that it's kind of a tonal cheat almost that they have presented a universe that doesn't fit with the consequences of the actions the kids see right that like they have these random encounters with basically a gang of murderous thugs throughout and come out okay uh beat up sometimes but mostly okay and then at the end it gets much more serious and it's the outcome that makes sense but i'm not sure it's the outcome that well, maybe it is the outcome that fits where the story's been going. I, I, I'm conflicted there. I really liked the ending. And I mean, it was dark, but I mean, in terms of it subverting that childhood innocence trope, which I was sort of complaining about a bit earlier, you know, that this is a glorious time that you're supposed to want to return to. It's like, no, this is a confusing, dark, powerless time. And, you know, look at the consequences mm-hmm. of that. Right. And I mean, I don't mean that in a moralistic sense. I don't think it's a moralistic story, but definitely in terms of in terms of taking you know sort of like cutting the legs off of that trope a little bit I enjoyed that aspect of it and I mean again it's hard for me to make a final sort of judgment on paper girls since I haven't read the entire series and we were just focusing on the first volume here because like a lot would depend on how that sort of wraps up but it did feel like sort of the innocence of those characters and it's not quite innocence in the traditional sense like you know they're not like innocent babes who have like no world knowledge these are like tough tomboy girl characters that like have like guns and hit people with sticks and like are fighting for their space in this delivery market like they're not innocent babes right but at the same time there's an innocence to how they approach situations which like there is in four kids as well mm-hmm. but it 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 sort of yeah like again is informed by challenging that with reality at the end and you know the consequences of like this un this unsupervised existence and the consequences of that confusion that that existence entails i mean partly though i like do you not feel that and this is a weird thing to say because paper girls is a very surrealistic you know imaginary sci-fi space and yet i think like four get four kids is sort of it's like a little bit more surreal in a way that it's like, so when I was, before I read it, I read the summary of it because I I like to sometimes do that just so I'm not, so that I'm paying attention to how the story is told and not just sort of flipping to see what happens. And that allows me to kind of do that a little bit better. And when I read the issue by issue summary of four kids before reading it, it was like horrifying. I was like, what? This is going to be a horrifying dark take. (laughs) Like people are getting lit on fire. Like people are getting shot and killed. Children are getting shot. This sounds horrible. And I was really not looking forward to reading reading it I was like oh great this is going to be you know a gritty dark take on reality that I don't know that I'm up for and then when I actually read it that wasn't the feeling that I got from it at all and it's partly how the story is told and it's partly that the story is told in a very unrealistic way where you're not 
it's sort of tropey and fun and cartoony in a way that there's a darkness, but there's a light and those two things interact with each other in a way that I think produces some, you know, interesting reactions in the reader that, you know, makes you think about what your investment is in this type of story. Like, why were you assuming it was going to go a certain way based on the characters being children, right? And I liked the way it turned that back on me and sort of subverted my expectations. I agree with that. Um, that like it, it, that is absolutely what it is doing tonally. I, I think there's a extent to which it's like, if someone, if when a, when a story like builds up an expectation and then subverts it and then kind of goes, uh, look at you for believing that this was going to fulfill the expectation. Like that sometimes feels like a cheat to me. Um, which, but I, I think it is worth, but but it is challenging something worth questioning. Like, why do we accept this lighter version of things that are unrealistic in that sense? Yeah. I was going to say, I'm I'm in the same boat as Anna in terms of, I, I really like the ending, but I completely agree with Michael that there's like, there's ways in which the text kind of leads you like that scene where the one child trampolines over a barbed wire fence to me that's a declaration that you know we're safe here this is this is children's fantasy no one's going to get hurt Uh, and then a few pages later the unthinkable happens Um, so i I think the subversion kind of goes back and forth in ways that i i kind of feel like it could be more satisfying with a more gradual tone but i do like the subversion so i'm kind of on the fence maybe i'm too in love with the thesis I made at the beginning, kind of connecting the ending to the reception of Rosenberg's Uncanny X-Men run, uh, which is kind of infamous for taking a slasher knife to the X-Men cast. Yeah. Uh, That like, and again, that was a highly like controversial storyline because of the way it felt like it was because readers felt that they were again, kind of not cheating, but like, the superhero deaths were supposed to mean something to them in that balance that Rosenberg wasn't fulfilling. But it's so different, right. the requirements of writing a long running serialized superhero book versus writing an indie comic. And I think that's why you get a lot of dissatisfaction a lot of the times with these oh, yeah. sort of celebrated indie creators going into a super, cause you know, a superhero book, it's like, especially you're going to write an X-Men book or something like, I'm sorry, but part of it is acknowledging that people have these deep, deep connections to these characters. You know, I mean, I've wrote a very personal essay about how Nightcrawler's death affected me. Right. Like, I mean, it's just that when that happens, it's like being having your guts ripped out it's horrible and you know you get superhero fans talked about as being regressive and everything because they have those investments and stuff like to me i mean my counter argument would be that you know that's just a thing that you get to experience in that space that you don't get to experience in other spaces like you get to experience a story that doesn't end you get to experience just spending infinite time with your characters that become like friends and managing those expectations and managing those emotions in a superhero book is really, really hard. And it's not like I've got some secret formula to that. Right. But again, what's going to work in four kids walk into a bank where we're just knowing these characters for five issues is so different than, yeah. But I think that's where the genre expectations come in that because it's building off our knowledge of these eighties adventure stories, it's playing with our expectations of safety that are implied in that as well. Right. But then that's maybe why I'm coming at it with I was like a little bit more a little bit happier with what four kids did with those childhood innocence themes, though. Right. Because it didn't sort of retreat back into that. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it almost gets back to the complaint I had about there not even being enough consequences in Paper Girls in a strange way, right? Because, I mean, you see these girls that although they're dealing with, you know, male bullies and stuff, they seem very divorced from a lot of the things I was dealing with at that age. And then the things that do happen are very heightened. I mean, somebody getting shot in the context of an alien invasion and then their wounds get repaired by magical alien technology. So there is a little bit of a stakes problem sometimes in that text for me, which is strange because I do think that Paper Girls in a lot of ways is way more grounded than for kids, which again has that kind of surrealistic Mm -hmm. feel. And I mean, even you think about the art style, like both of these art styles are very expressive and yet, um, boss's art style he does a lot of sort of experimental layouts with you know sort of magical realism stuff of like did that van actually jump over the river or was that sort of their childhood imagination and you get like slippage between reality and imagination Mm -hmm. there but strangely it feels more grounded because of the intrusion of consequences that make you understand those slippages between fantasy and reality whereas paper girls is a little bit smoother in terms of this is what's happening and you get a little bit of a slippage in terms of the girls having a bit of a childlike perspective on things. They don't react to things the same way that adults would. And yet it's just such a different feel to me in terms of consequences. And that can be very powerful to the extent that, yeah, you can have these empowered adventures in this consequence-free space. And that can be very important for young female protagonists as well. But I mean, a question that maybe, because we had this question that came up when we were doing a couple of um, female protagonist books before, which is like, who are these for? Like, is this for young girls? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Like, especially because it's so, it's so in the eighties think- context. I mean, like a girl who's born in like two thousand, like in five. Like, what would she? <laughs> she doesn't care about the eighties. <laughs> like, I think it's closer than for kids, actually, as something that you could like give a kid and yeah. they'd read it. And but I think that's more a testament to the fact that kids will read the things you give to them. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, yeah, I would not give four kids walk into a bank to a, a, a child of this similar age. I think you could do that with this just if nothing else, because there aren't any immediate, very violent. Well, there's some violence, but not like consequence to violence in that way. Yeah. But I mean, it gets us back to those issues of representation and the issues of who's writing a thing and for whom, right? Because if this is written by, you know, guys of a certain age about girls of a certain age, is this for other guys of a certain age to pat themselves on the back about doing representation right? Or is this actually supposed to improve representation by appealing to the audience that is the underrepresented audience that they're representing? Like so I just I was a little bit unsure about yeah. that. In terms of, and we haven't talked about the backup feature at all, but I mean I was wondering what was going on there in terms of there was that dialogue going on in the backup feature, the Peter the PD the paperboy backup feature, you know, where they had that invitation to like, you know, can girls be paperboys? And it seemed like this invitation to get more female letter writers and stuff sort of participating. And then they did spotlight in the next, that in the next issue, but that was so constructed. And I'm like, well, you know, like how many female letter writers were you getting? And like, you're telling, because letter columns are always very constructed political spaces, right? I mean, you publish the letters that you want Mm -hmm. to reflect the self-identity of the book. And I didn't like that being so manipulative in a comic that was supposedly an indie comic. I expect that from a superhero comic. And yet I'm like, uh, I I didn't like those. I didn't like the backup features. 
I, I think it connects back to audience that my feel is the primary audience for Paper Girls, at least when it started, was fans of Brian K. Vaughn, which yeah. <laughs> has built up a, 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 at least a bit of a, a female readership. Like Saga yeah, is very sure. popular yeah, for sure. among for sure. a lot of people. Uh, I think now its audience is, uh, it's the thing that comic book shops might recommend to you if you like Stranger Things, but yeah. I mean, obviously. Okay, so so one of the characters in Four Kids that kind of stands out in a lot of ways um, is Burger, uh, and I know that Michael and Anna both have strong thoughts on Burger. So, Michael, do you want to take us away with this? Burger is arguably the most tropish character I think in the story, in the sense that he is the annoyance. He is the comic relief. He is, in Goonies, he'd be the one doing the truffle shuffle. And he's a nine, he's kind of a 90s character too, in that sense. He's, he's like the Oracle of the group. <laughs> um, yeah, combining that with his uh, Jewish character is a bit, um, he helps define them as a friend group, that these are people who hang together, in a sense, because they don't have anyone else to look out for. And to look out for themselves. And he kind of solidifies that, I think. I don't, yeah, I mean, I loved him as a character. I just, you know, it was just like one of those wild characters that you get to do anything with. And I mean, he was tropish, but I felt like with the rest, of, it sort of fit in with the rest of the comic in terms of there were aspects of tropes and then there's ways of subverting the tropes as well. I mean, you know, he is this annoyance, but he also has this like naive innocence and exuberance that is very charming. That is not sort of typical to me of that character. So yeah, I don't know. I found him actually a very likable character. He's the annoyance, but I, it's just that, like, yeah, his really. his innocence and naivety are very charming. I love it's how like, he tells the dad that he's allergic to ice cream, and then, like, a few issues later, he's just eating a lot of ice cream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, he's got so many good lines. I mean, the thing about the chocolate milk, it's like, do we really not have any chocolate yeah. milk in here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, like, so good. And they break into the guy's house, and he's just, like, eating a sandwich. Just, I mean, he's so great. I don't know. Like... Yeah, I mean, I know, again, I know what you mean in terms of it being a tropish character, and yet it's a, it's a character that's like, you never know what that character is going to do next, which is an, in itself a trope, and yet he was just such a fun character. Like, he's just fun. He's a fun guy, and that can be a problem when you're trying to do a bank heist, but, like, it's definitely fun for us as readers. And it's significant that he's the character that gets shot. I mean, is that, like, significant, or I don't know? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. I think it has to be because, like, as tropish as he as he is, like, that character isn't the one that you build the tragedy around typically. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I, I feel like there's some again kind of like subversion to that. It, it's this character who you're supposed to feel bad for, even though you weren't supposed to feel bad for him for at, like any point throughout the rest of the series, except because he's a kid, uh, and you get that mm -hmm. hindsight sort of reflection on how a lot of his failings as a person are because. He's a stupid child. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, for, for typical pathos reasons, it should be who? Like Walter that gets shot, probably? You can't shoot yeah. the black kid, though. Well, <laughs> they do a lot, though. Yeah. <laughs> All 
Uh, okay so the last thing we have to do today as we are in the custom of doing is to give some recommendations so we were thinking like maybe something from the 80s or something that captures a good childhood experience uh in light of our discussion today what do you have for us Anna <laughs> I don't know that it captures a good childhood experience <laughs> but I was going to recommend well. <laughs> uh Bill Medlow and Rick Leonardi's Cloak and Dagger series from 1983 so Cloak and Dagger are a problematic superhero duo. I mean, there's a lot of sort of race and gender stuff in this comic that I would, yes, definitely, if we think about that scare phrase of politically problematic, yeah, definitely. Um, and yet the charm of reading older comics is seeing how genuinely they are trying to address social problems and not always succeeding. And yet there can be something very charming about that attempt. And this is a series that sort of encapsulates a lot of that sort of, you know, 80s soul searching that was going on in sort of this era that was getting more and more into deconstructive superhero comics, um, very influenced by sort of themes from X-Men comics as well. Some of those, you know, the torment of the mutant superhero and everything right but in terms of what the 80s looked like stereotypically in comics i think it's a really great series to return to and just <laughs> see what people thought was innovative groundbreaking you know hard-hitting storytelling in a superhero comic of the early 1980s and i think cloak and dagger is very typical of that and you may hate it or you may love it but um <laughs> It's definitely a one that I think is an interesting one to check out if you are interested in kind of history of superhero comics. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in that mm -hmm. one. If you can forgive it, as you said, there's 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 good stuff to be had. How about you, Michael? I'm going to go with something that I will probably be proposing for an episode at one point or another. Uh, another 1980s comic, which I did not read in the 1980s. I read last year. Uh, Walter Simonson's Thor run. Uh, this is rightfully regarded as one of the best runs of Thor comics. Uh, it, I think if you really wanted to stretch it to uh, this week or this month's theme, uh, the relationship between Thor and Odin constitutes some similar-ish uh, teen coming of age kind of themes that Thor is very much in a lot of the series, especially before the 21st century about uh, a child coming to terms with his father's expectations on him. And it features the debut of probably my favorite Marvel hunk character, Beta Ray Bill. So that's worth reading. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I'm going to uh, recommend something not from the, era, but uh, I'm going to do Marco and Jillian Tamaki's skim. I have not been able to stop recommending Marco and Jillian Tamaki works. I don't know what it is, but um, I, I've really enjoyed them. Except Becoming Supergirl, which everyone should avoid, in my opinion. Because <laughs> it's a horrible waste of, of, of Joelle Jones' fantastic illustrations. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and with that, I think all that's left is to let you know what we're doing next episode, where we're going to go transmedia. Uh, we're going to talk about the Wolverine podcast series, which came out a couple years back. Uh, and we're going to talk about the 1974 Fantastic Four radio serial. Uh, and I'm sure we'll, we'll post links to that in our Twitter feed. Uh, and other than thanking our panel, we don't have to thank anyone else except our listeners. And we'll hope to see you next month.